Simple Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Beth Macy has been reporting since she was four years old and ran away from home on her tricycle with her beagle mutt, Tessie. She made it as far as the grocery store, where she was found interviewing the butcher and staring wistfully at the popsicles. Six years later, she got her first newspaper job, delivering the Urbana Daily Citizen from her 10-speed. I met Beth when she was a columnist at the Roanoke Times. I started reading her columns and was dazzled by how eloquently she captured the essence of outsiders and underdogs, her favorite subjects. Then she started writing books. Beth is the author of three bestsellers, Factory Man, True Vine, and her latest, Dope Sick, about the heroin and opioid epidemic. How does she find her stories? She follows what moves her. Beth is here to talk about how to follow what moves you and create a life you love out of it. Beth, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's so great to see you again after too long. Oh, way too long. I mean, it's been decades. And I don't remember the moment I met you, but I felt like God dropped this little alien from the sky that matched me. And I had always felt so alone as a writer. And there you were right in front of me. Same here. And I think at one point we even realized our birthdays were one day apart. I, yeah, we're like so and, you know, I want to start with that idea of having a mentor. We became writing partners. And I remember we tried, our goal was to kind of write every day and share things. And for a while it worked. And then I think I just got intimidated because your writing was so good. But that idea of having somebody to kind of be your partner and be accountable to, how has that shaped your writing? Yeah. So we met um, at a columnist conference. I believe you were at the Akron paper and I was at the Roanoke paper. And we were both sort of unicorns in our communities. We were women writing columns about things that moved us, which moved women readers at a time when, at least at my paper, the editors really weren't that dazzled by that thought, even though women buy things. So they're the ones advertisers are targeting. And so we both were kind of sharing the stresses of that. And I remember you used to work at home, like on the days your column came out, because of the guff you used to catch from fellow colleagues. And then I started doing that too. And then the thing we started doing, and guys, this was before email. There was a time before email. And (laughs) Regina and I used to print up our drafts and mail them with a stamp to each other at our homes. And we would write, you know, encouraging thoughts. And the thing that always dazzled me about you, and, and I've learned this from other people I really admire who made a big impact on me was just how organized you were like you I remember you had these files a b c d every letter of the alphabet and when you would have an idea you would put it in this folder and then when something would happen to spark an idea you would you would already have information that you would put in this folder because this was before the internet and I just thought I think um, Louis Pasteur said chance favors the, the prepared mind chance favors the prepared mind and one thing that wowed me was that you worked really, really hard to be creative, that you knew that if you worked hard and you had an uncreative day, that that work you had done in the time before could then inspire you to have a, an unprecedented idea that day. And I didn't have anybody in my world like that. And that really helped me. Well, it's funny you mentioned that the, the before the internet, because there was no Google to research things. So I literally would cut everything I would read. I'd save like things from restaurants with an idea. I had all these things and I just kept this giant file system, but it was bouncing off ideas of 
people like you, I could bounce them off of and, and kind of have them celebrated instead of just kind of being demoralized. There were a lot of male energy in the newsroom when we started. And I think we were sort of like going Oprah on people in a way. I mean, if it was anything touchy (laughs) or inspirational, it was like, you know, I had editors that sort of held their nose, you know, and put up with me. Yeah. Yeah. I had some that made just demeaning, demoralizing remarks at some of the things I read that, that my personal readers really liked. Right. And when all this Me Too state stuff came out a couple of years ago, I didn't have any stories of overt sexual harassment, but I kind of got a, a mini PTSD flash of the way you and I were both treated, which was totally uh, emotional violence in some ways. I mean, it was, I, I wouldn't treat my worst enemy the way I was treated by some of my colleagues, uh, just belittling, demeaning. And I remember at one point there was a, I never found out who it was, but a friend said they're, they're taking account to, uh, they're, they're doing a bet on how many times you write about your family, like, and whoever gets the right amount. And my friend stuck up for me and she said, guys, she doesn't do it that often, but so what if I did, you know, like everybody's in a family. And so I just learned a lot of, a lot about that. When you find somebody that's doing something that you want to do and has figured out how to improvise or adapt around it, which you were doing. I mean, I think that's when we get, when we get into tight situations like that and we know we're not fulfilling our calling, we need to seek out mentors. Ever since then, I've done that in various different ways and venues. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about that calling because for me, that calling for me as a journalist was, to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And the comfortable don't like being disturbed. And sometimes the comfortable were editors who didn't want me to write about that touchy-feely stuff, but that's where people live. I tell people, people don't go to bed usually thinking about global warming. They think about, is their kid going to get into that college or are they going to get COVID or their world is more personal. And I have a sticky note I keep on my computer that says. That's so funny because I just reached a sticky note. I have a bunch of Hilarious. Yeah, so mine says, love what you write and love the people reading it. And I got to remember, Beth, I write for the readers, not for the editors or the critics. You sent me a note, and this used to be on my computer like five computers ago. It said, (laughs) I probably have it memorized. I might mess it up. But you said, you are not writing for the politicians and the CEOs and the editors. You're writing for the waitress at Denny's who's, who's been on her feet all night long being, you know, harassed by whoever. And you said it much better than that, but I did have that on a sticky note. And what I have right now is, is hold power accountable. I also have like little things like uh, quotes from, you know, about how to get over anxiety. Just what I'm always looking for little tips that, that can be touchstones there's one I'm reading right there that says it's from Sarah Stillman at the New Yorker says, as I get deeper in this writing, I realize that almost every story is a more interesting and more meaningful story because it's as complicated as it is. And I think in my early career, I used to kind of run away from complicated things because they were going to challenge people intellectually or maybe challenge their political beliefs. And I realized that as I just got deeper into it, uh, that was closer to where the truth lies. That's really beautiful. You know, uh, Beth, 
I want to talk just for a minute about that idea of the obstacles, because sometimes people think, oh, you've got it so easy. You had a column, you know, the doors flew open, you just breeze right through them. And I think everybody has their own like personal, the hurdles and the obstacles they have to, to climb. And I remember at the conference we went to, it was the National Society of Newspaper Columnists. And I was at lunch and I was sitting with a bunch of guys who had columns for decades. I was pretty new to the column world. And I talked about wanting to have a syndicated column someday and someday write books. And this gentleman turned to me and said, well, that's awful ambitious. And he said it in such a negative way. I have never forgotten the shame I felt about having that dream. And I think that a lot of women especially get silenced so fast and so abruptly that we put our own brakes on after that. Absolutely. So many things I've tried to get and didn't get. I mean, probably some people look at the successes I've had in recent years and say, and that's all they see, of course, because like, you don't put on Facebook when you didn't get your dream job or when you didn't get the fellowship <laughs> you applied for, right? So I, I remember in 2008, I applied to be a Neiman fellow at Harvard, which is this great fellowship where they bring in top journalists from all over the world. And I didn't get it, but I got really close. And I impressed the curator enough that he reached out to me and asked me to apply again. And, you know, I was kind of crushed because I I had a huge public speaking phobia at the time. And it was one of these panel interview type deals where like, you know, you had before you could even catch your breath from answering the last question, another person would come in with another question and you just sort of felt beat up at the end. And I wasn't particularly good at that venue of like facing a bunch of people, but I crushed it and I didn't get it. And so I was really upset. And then I thought, well, what the hell? I'm going to. I'm going to try again. And I just barely got it the second year, but I got it. And those people then became my Regina's of that period in my time. I mean, all of our family vacations, like we have friends all over the world now. We've been to South Africa. We've been to Portugal. We go with a group of friends every year to this little island in Maine and where we cook all week and take hikes and have a blast. But we also talk about our work. And that buoys me because we're all pretty much writing individually now and we're our own bosses. And I know that those are the people I can call if I have a problem, like a quick story about the last book when my editor sent her first edits, the first time working with her, I'd had a previous editor at the same time, but it was so overwhelming. I mean, they were all really good edits, but it was so overwhelming that I literally had a panic attack. I couldn't sleep. I was crying. I said, well, this, that's it. I can't do it. They found out what an imposter I am. I'm going to have to give the advance money back. And my, and my husband said, we can't give it back because we've been living on it. So the only way through was to get through it. But I had this, this group of women mainly that I had met and they were my Neiman friends. And one stayed up all night, like creating a Google doc to help me answer my editor's questions. Another helped me sort through the the structural problem. She's a real narrative writing expert. My husband gave me the idea for turning chapter 13 into the prologue. And, you know, it's bird by bird. You just, you pluck it off one day at a time. And I didn't even tell my editor, like, in what a bad space I was. And that, that her, how she had urinated on my manuscript. <laughs> but I got through it. And the book is so much better. But if you're like me, and I think many people are, you just, Sometimes the anxiety can can get a hold and really kind of paralyze you. You know, Beth, I'm glad you shared that story about, you know, getting your manuscript back. The first book I wrote, 
And it was the old days where they sent you back a box with the manuscript. It wasn't on the computer. And there were all these red things everywhere. And I was like, ah, but I thought, you know, the only way to get better is to have somebody that gives you that feedback of how to improve. And I, I kind of wanted both. And I had both. I had one editor who said to me, I wrote this column about 50 life lessons that turned into my first book. Yeah. And he said to me before it ran in the newspaper, he goes, you know, you'd be a really good writer if you didn't write this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking, and that's the and it one. became the most famous thing I ever wrote. I mean, it's in 22 countries now, but he was a good editor, but I needed more than just him. And I had that in a, a gentleman named Stuart Warner, who became a great friend and a great editor, who one day called me and said, those 50 life lessons are traveling the world. You should turn that into a book. And it was like the light bulb was like a street yeah. light being in my darkness. And I thought, yeah. oh my gosh. And I did, and that launched my writing career. But but if I had gone alone, one, I never would have become a columnist, never would become a journalist because it's scary to do anything alone. So that idea of having partners is really important and mentors. Absolutely. Absolutely. And being willing to just step out there sometimes. It's easy to kind of shut down and say, I'm not even going to try. When I met the person who led to my first book, which was Factory Man, so he was this kind of larger than life third generation furniture maker. I didn't even want to know that I wanted to write books at the time, but suddenly I met one individual and that's my favorite jam kind of story, like where you can really tell a lot through one person's lens. Cause I think we learn better as readers that way. So I met one person whose whole family represented the history of an industry. He had done this amazing, unusual legal thing where he sued China in a court of international trade to keep his factory going. And then unlike his colleagues, he didn't just shut down the factory and pocket the proceeds. He used it to keep the jobs. And this was the moment when I decided this could be my first book. I was interviewing somebody about him. I hadn't even met him yet. And I said, well, is he a good talker? And you know this, like if you get somebody who's a good talker, your job is just easier, right? And he goes, a good talker. Are you kidding me? I mean, he was just like straight out of Faulkner. He, he goes, he says things like the F and Chai comms aren't going to tell me how to make furniture. And I was just like, I got to go meet this guy. So what I did after I had written the story for the paper, uh, but before it had come out, I said, who do I know in my circle? I think I have a book here. Who do I know in my circle who has written books? So I called a friend, uh, Roland Lazenby, who had written a bunch of books, mainly sports books that had done very well. He sent me his proposal. I mean, people are really kind if you ask, right? He sent me his proposal, and then he would send me little notes on email encouraging me. He was like, don't be scared. You're effing fearless. Just little, like, daily affirmations. And then another friend who had, because I really didn't want to write a proposal because I had written one before, and it had taken forever, and it hadn't gone anywhere, and he said, well, I wrote mine with a newborn baby in the house. And then, you know, the, the competitive person in me went, <laughs> I can't be lazy. You know, Ralph can't outwork me. So so I did it. I wrote a proposal before work and after work. And I did it in one week. I think sometimes we think things are going to take so much time that we worry about them. When if we just sat down and did them, we could get them done. And the proposal was good enough to get me several agents that were interested in the idea and then I was able to interview agents and pick out the one that I wanted, um, who then helped me shape it into something we could sell. And I, ultimately, I was able to quit my job and just do the books, which thank God, because 
as you know, the newspaper industry has just imploded. Well, Bethel, I want to pause for just a minute. We're past the halfway mark here. It went so fast. I want to thank all of you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guests, uh, Beth Macy. I know you have many podcast choices, and I'm really grateful you chose to listen to mine. Beth, that idea of follow what moves you. You know, you follow the furniture workers. You've been all over the world, but there's something, does it like land somewhere inside of you where you go, aha, that's the story, like that's my path? Like, how do you know, to, yeah. how do you know what to follow? It's my neck, which is also my greatest source of uh, pain because I have uh, TMJ and um, uh, my neck always hurts, right? But when the little hairs stand up on the back of my neck, I know I've got a good story. So like when my friend Joel said, he says things like the F and Chai comes aren't going to tell me how to make furniture. Like literally the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I was like, I've never met anyone who would say that out loud. And the same thing, like I was doing some research on this little dying factory town and I was interviewing this former office manager at a textile plant who was wearing this lovely necklace. It was silver and I forget exactly what it looked like, but it just was very eye-catching. And I said, Mary, I love your necklace. And she said, oh, it was Tiffany. When I had a good job, I could afford to buy her things that really lasted. And she was so proud of her job. And at the time she could only cobble together uh, under the table, things like catering gigs and part-time jobs. And she said she had been uh, work, helping a friend with a catering job at a fancy party. And the former CEO of her former factory came in. And, and she said to him, let's see if I get this right. Mr. Frank, if Toltex were to open back up today, and the only way I could get there for work would to be to crawl on my belly like a snake, I would do it. And that was another one. It was just like... When I heard that, I knew that was the line I wanted to aim to. And I knew that even though I had this great character, that it was, it was the voice of the little people. And, and you helped teach me this too. It was, I wasn't going to just go interview the CEOs of the furniture. I was going to talk to the workers and the waitresses that served them lunch and, and the janitors and, and the people on the line. And that's where I learned the real story. And I was interviewing another person early on in that book who I asked her for a phone number at the end in case I had any questions. And she said, well, here, you better take my mom's number too, because my phone's about to be cut off. And that was another thing that just caught me in the chest, not just because it was moving, but because I grew up poor in a house where they would always talk about, you know, you know, we couldn't pay our heat bill this month. Are they going to turn the heat off or is our phone going to be cut off? And when you have those things that just grab you in your soul, that I think those are the things we have to follow. So those things that like you and I know that we could study and we could write about anything, but when we write about things that are in our subject circle and are in our soul circle, that's when our, our strengths as writers are crossing with our own personal values. And that is definitely when we do our best work. No matter what it is, I think that applies to anything. I think you're right, and I call it my wow meter. You you have the the tingling on your neck. I have like a little meter when it goes wow, like I gotta write <laughs> about that. Oh my god, that's a great quote or a great person or a great story. Yeah. If I have to manufacture wow, it's not there. Like that does not have my name on it. it exactly. You know, Beth, we both love this quote by Will Durant, and I want to share it because 
I think that we both aim for this. Will Durant said, civilization is often told by historians. He says, the stream is filled with blood from people killing, stealing, shouting, doing things that historians usually record. While on the banks, unnoticed, people build homes, make love, raise children, sing songs, write poetry, and even whittle statues. The story of civilization is the story of what happened on the banks. And I think that's where we went and reported on the banks. And I think that in this political world we're in right now, I think sometimes we forget about the people baking bread and the people coming home from the factory and all the, the people that really hold up the world. It's not the CEOs and the politicians. Absolutely. And, and so much of what gets reported today in this declining media landscape is, you know, and you know, these are good reporters. They just, there's not enough of them. And so what ends up getting told is the easy stuff that comes to them, spoon fed to them by largely elites. And so I think it's really, you know, my next book is going to be about solutions to the opioid crisis. And I'm writing about what's happening and trying to write, find an interesting angle into what's happening with all these lawsuits that are happening in in Cleveland actually and in White Plains New York and there's this big bankruptcy and I'm trying to find an interesting way that will move people make them understand but that's so high level right and I can tell that I have those skills but what I'm doing instead is I'm talking to people on the ground that are out delivering Narcan in trailer parks right this one woman told me this week and she and she had such good language She's starting a nascent syringe exchange program, but right now she, she hands out Narcan and she had lost her daughter and her mother to overdose. The other day she got a frantic phone call from a mother next door whose son was a groomsman in a wedding and she had already Narcan this kid four times in the past year. And she said, the mother called frantic said, he's overdosed again. He's at a wedding. He's in the wedding. And it was at a wedding reception. She said, so I rushed up there. It took her about three minutes to get there. And she said, it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. It was like a Martha Stewart rustic outdoor wedding, twinkle lights everywhere. And she said, and there he was on the ground. And I remember looking at his shoes and his socks matched his wingtips. And the mother of bride was sort of clutching her pearl necklace and, I, and she brought him back to life, you know, and then they carted him off to the ER and the party went on. And she said, so underneath this glitzy thing, people are still acting like this, this didn't just happen. And so that's the kind of story that I want to tell, but it's kind of like, how do you give the context, but still have that gritty, harsh, beautiful story be the beating heart of what you're doing and so that's that's what I'm trying to do well you just painted I could see the mother clutching her pearls I probably won't ever forget that that's what I love about your writing Beth is you make it visual you make it like all the five senses are there you can smell the candles you can feel the pearls you can see the person on the floor you know the, your book dope sick very powerful and very much needed and really made some ripple changes all over the all over the world especially in ohio where in akron ohio we've been uh, just devastated by the epidemic cleveland west virginia and i wonder what made you want to go after that book dope sick and really try to harness such a huge problem and, and squeeze it into a book yeah, I had actually started writing about the heroin epidemic when it landed in our suburbs here 
in Roanoke, where I live, in, which is kind of right in the middle of the state, but it's sort of the entryway to Western Virginia and Appalachia. We're about two hours from where OxyContin first exploded in the mid-90s. And the story that everybody was talking about that summer was the fact that this wealthy kid in this suburb, which is featured on the cover of the book, I don't have it handy, but that the wealthy kids were doing heroin. And and it just kind of, I wrote this three-part series, readers kind of spit up their coffee and said, what? Wealthy white kids are doing heroin. And I wrote this series that I thought would move people, if if not to sort of start to humanize these people, but at least to say, get the leftover opioid pills that kids are starting out with out of your medicine cabinets. And I sort of let it go, but it kept niggling at me because I, I stayed in touch with these mothers, these two mothers that I had focused on. One had lost her son to overdose and the other had sold him the heroin uh, that made the, that led to the kid's death. And so when I was casting about for my second book, I had pitched that to editors in New York and my agent in New York. And they're like, heroin, that happened in the nineties here. You know, like they were like, they weren't seeing it yet. And I didn't have the guts to stand up yet. And it took like economists coming out in 2015 saying, you know, you who people, we have a declining life expectancy for the first time in American history. And it was directly related to diseases of despair and overdoses. So then I was able to do that for my third book. And as you know, reporting from one community or one region for 30 years, and early in my career, I always thought you had to get to New York or whatever to do really good work. But then I realized, like, I stayed here because I, in one place, because it was a great place to raise a family. I had great friends here. But I realized that there was an advantage that most journalists didn't do that were ascending the ladder. They, they, they left. So when I start a project and I'm able to call upon sources from 30 years and I think elevate some of these communities that get overlooked and just have that really slow developing, slow simmering story that a lot of people aren't privy to because they live in big cities. It's like, I'm from a small town in Ohio and I couldn't wait to get away, but what do I write about now? Like a small, small towns. You can leave the small town, but the small town never leaves you. I, I feel like I'm still this kid from Ravenna, population 10,000, in a good way, because I pay attention to the guy who's, you know, the janitor, the person cleaning the whatever, the parking attendant. There's something about that small town where everybody mattered because you kind of just knew everybody. And the people that we all had these big dreams in high school, and then you find out, oh, this one did end up being a janitor and this one did up selling insurance who was the quarterback of the high school or whatever. And you realize every life matters and is valuable. And it's not about the income and success level that we thought we were aiming for. So I'm glad you've, you've not lost that sense of, of what matters. And, and Beth, we're, we don't have much time left, but I wonder that idea of um, what's universal. They say, you know, what comes from the heart, reaches the heart. There's kind of a universal truth, whether you're in Roanoke or New York or LA. And it, it's part of that following what matters to you. And what are the truths that matter most to you? If you had to distill like the things that matter most to you as a writer, what would they be? Unfairness. And I think I got that because I grew up poor. And when I got to school and saw that there were people who went on these things called vacations, what what are those <laughs> who got multiple presents at Christmas? What's that? You know, and I think there was the sense that really it is our job to hold power accountable. And really it isn't fair that 
people of color are held to different policing policies and are incarcerated five times more than people who aren't of color who use drugs at a higher rate. And so I think that's, that is always what I'm aiming for. And I'm always aiming to tell, like when I set out to tell Factory Man, I wanted to write a book that I could give to my mom who, you know, went to high school, not college, who was a great reader, by the way. She would read like three and four books a week. We were right down the street from the library. But I could give the book to my mom and it would explain to her why it is our little factory town looks the way it does. Why I would write a book that a regular person, maybe who who had an addicted relative um, that they couldn't understand why the relative was stealing from her mother or was committing crimes and they just couldn't understand it until they read my book, Dope Sick. Probably the nicest thing anybody said to me in the aftermath of that book coming out was that until I read your book, I didn't realize that I was part of a bigger story. This was a person in recovery. She said, before that, I thought I was just a F up. Uh, so she realized that she wouldn't have been here if pharma didn't sell this addictive drug under the guise of it not being addictive and that the politicians and the lobbyists and the regulators hadn't looked the other way and that it wasn't just her fault. So so that's kind of shining a light on unfairness. Well, I love that. That's, that's your target. Your ex on the target is I'm an archer. So that's your ex. I love that. Mine is to give people hope. I feel like we all have something we're called to be and do. And you've got a lot of great tips here for, for finding that. Beth, I have to close and I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. What's the best way to connect with you on social media? Sure. I'm at Beth Macy on Instagram and I have an author page, which I think is on Facebook, which I think is author Beth Macy. And I'm on Twitter at Paper Girl Macy. I'm still holding on to that Paper Girl uh, moniker because that was my first job delivering the news in my little small town. But this has been so great catching up with you. I miss you. Oh, I miss you too. Well, my biggest takeaway today is to really follow what moves you and know that it might not move everybody, but there's an audience that's going to be connected to that to that string that you're tagging that you're unraveling. Beth, I want you to close with your answer to this question I ask everybody. Uh, what's the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? Mm, I really try hard to get out in nature. I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains and we have a little park in the middle of our city called Mill Mountain. And my husband and I, when the kids were little, but old enough that they could be left alone while still sleeping, we would get up in the pre-dawn and hike up the mountain and back. And and that's something that we held on to. And I just think it's so important. And especially in this pandemic time, like we're feeding the birds. We've never fed the birds before. And it's just so beautiful. We've created this little backyard oasis with a fire pit and a lovely garden and and the birds. And I think we have to find beauty where we can. I love that. That is beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, to urge us all to get out there and enjoy nature. Thanks, Beth. Thank you, Regina. So great to see you. You too. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show 
so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.